0: This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians. I raise the rates immunization initiative. National Influenza Vaccination Week is coming December 6th through 12th. Visit acponline.org forward AI to access free resources to raise adult immunization rates and protect your patient's health during flu season. Welcome back to the curbsiders. We're going to make this short and sweet. Hi, Stuart. We are here doing a a very rapid fire recap of several diabetes episodes that we've done over the last few years. And we're really going to focus on A1C targets and how our listeners can feel comfortable using the newer agents, the GLP-1 agonists, the SGLT-2 inhibitors. Paul, will you tell them in general, uh, who are we and what do we do?
2: Sure, Matt. In general, we are the internal medicine podcast. Ordinarily, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. The format of our triple distilled show is a little bit different where we uh, just kind of sit back and reflect on those expert interviews after the fact. And we have uh, an amazing program put together by the amazing Dr. Molly Hoybline uh, designed to sort of elicit the teaching points from a lot of prior episodes about diabetes management. So we talk about um, some stuff that Dr. Colburn taught us. We touched on some of his stuff from episode 25, the, the hyperglycemia episode with him. We talk about the newer diabetes medications from 2017, episode 96 with Dr. Leffert. We review in gory detail um, A1C targets, ACP guidelines, controversy. Uh, that was an episode with Dr. Devin Kansagara. And a lot of the points that we touch on come from some of our hotcakes episodes as well as well as a diabetes update with, with Dr. Colburn. So we cover a lot of territory in two cases. So just with two diabetic patients, we managed to cover everything that you possibly want to know about diabetes.
0: Yeah, and I should mention to the audience that uh, our episodes are available for free CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And for these triple distilled episodes, uh, for this one, you can get up to four hours of CME credit if you've uh, gone through the other shows and you're now reviewing them and and doing uh, the CME activity for this one. So
1: you're welcome.
3: (laughs) That's pretty generous. <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, hey, Molly, do you know why n- nice people get DKA more often?
3: Because they're from Jersey?
1: No, because they're just so sweet.
3: <laughs> I really wanted the a one. It's A1 similar st- to one of your other ones.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I, I mean, thought you were going to cram the a one in that C- it's not dope. good.
0: <laughs> Molly, whenever you're ready, you can start us with the first case.
3: All right. So our first case uh, from Cashlack Memorial here is Mr. Geff Lozen. He's a 49-year-old male with hypertension and type 2 diabetes who's coming in for follow-up. He's taking hydrochlorothiazide, 25, metformin, 1 gram twice daily, and a tour of a 20. On exam, his BMI is 29, and his blood pressure is 134 over 85. His creatinine is 0.9, and his A1C is 9%. So I thought we could start off by talking about when the A1c is not a reliable measurement and how we should think about looking at those results.
1: This feels like Stewart territory. Yeah. So the first thing I always ask myself is whether or not I can trust that A1c. Uh, And this is based off of anything that would increase... Uh, RBC cell turnover or decreased production. So someone with like a mechanical valve that has increased RBC turnover, that A1C may actually be higher than 9% because the, the red blood cells just aren't lasting as long in circulation. Versus someone that has, say, a severe iron deficiency, those red blood cells, are they're in circulation longer. And so the chances they become glycosylated actually increase. Uh, there's one study that shows it increases as much as 1.5% on the A1C with severe iron deficiency. And so um, it's really dependent on the presence or absence of anemia. So someone can have severe iron deficiency, but not be anemic. And that patient likely isn't in- at increased risk. But if they have the anemia component, that's when you really have to be concerned about that.
3: I think that's really interesting to keep in mind. I just saw a patient yesterday kind of as I was preparing for this and she was very iron deficient and her A1C was in the pre-diabetic range. And Mm -hmm. I felt okay kind of reassuring her that, um, you know, maybe that's not real and still she should have a healthy lifestyle, but not to be as worried about it as we might've been.
1: Right. And you can always get like a fructosamine in order to provide kind of that um, repeat analysis or maybe a secondary analysis to determine if the A1C is uh, as accurate as you think it is, but r- realistically you've got to, you know, somewhat take it with a grain of salt. Um, this is, this is when I make my patients do like a, a seven by three, uh, glucose log. The seven just means seven times a day. They're checking their glucose for three days. So pre and post-prandial three meals and then, uh, QHS. And that that gives me a better estimation of what. So the, if they weren't anemic the before, they are when they're done. <laughs> yeah, sure. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> right. How
3: many that's of those lot. do you Only get for back? Only three
1: days. Only for seven.
3: Three days. Seven. That's a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Cannulate the jugular and wish them the best of luck. I think so. Colburn made uh, so Jeff Colburn made the point also that the A1C is an average, which I thought was, I, I thought initially, yeah, dull nemesis. But actually, the point that he was making <laughs> is that you know just because. an average could also be uh, the average of very low and very high. So you could have someone who has a lot of postprandial excursions. So just because you see a number that looks decent doesn't mean they're not having excursions that are actually um, significant for pretty real hyperglycemia. So don't be falsely reassured by that either. So again, um, check them as many as seven times per day if you're concerned about that, I suppose. And
1: and it's unfortunate because in the HEDIS metrics, they include A1C. And so you could have a higher percentage of patient population at a lower A1c. Maybe that just means that you're having more hypoglycemia though.
0: All right. I think we should move on to the next part. So just to summarize, if if red blood cells are around longer, they're going to get more sugar stuck to them. It might elevate your A1c. If they have a shortened lifespan, they're going to have less sugar stuck to them. It could lower your A1c falsely. And as Paul was mentioning, um, yeah, the A1c is an average. So it could mean Really high, really low lows and really high highs, but it gives you the same average as someone who has a steady, steady glucose. And then I don't think any of us are routinely sending fructosamine, but that's an option if you want to, if you don't trust the A1C and you want to see what the two week average has been. Mm-hmm. So for this guy, I don't think this glyfilosin guy is A1C's nine percent. I don't think we really need to be suspecting based on this history we have right now that his A1C would be unreliable.
1: Right what do you think about this specific patient? How, how would you treat him? What do you think his A1C goal would be and why?
3: And I think looking back at our our episodes on diabetes, it was really interesting to kind of listen to them back to back. Um, Because we've had experts who helped write or disseminate three of the major guidelines, the VADOD, the AACE, and the ACP guidelines, as well as touch on the American Diabetes Association guidelines. So there, there are some significant differences. And I think it gives us as clinicians an opportunity to kind of choose what we think fits best for how we look at our patients and how we look at medicine. Um, I tend to mostly follow the ACP guidelines, which are that for the average patient between seven and eight is appropriate.
0: Yeah. I And I, I love those guidelines. Uh, first of all, I'll say about all the conflicting guidelines, the endocrinology societies tend to have the lower A1C targets, either less than seven or less than 6.5 for patients. But- there's lots of caveats, and most of those caveats just tend to be if someone's older and sicker, if they have a reduced life expectancy, or if they're at high risk for hypoglycemia, then you can back off. Um, so a lot of our internal medicine patients meet that. But where the A1C guidelines come from uh, is is actually the fact that there was five or six large trials, the UK PDS, uh, the, the ACCORD ADVANCE, the VA diabetes trial, and th- those trials they actually tried to get patients A1C less than 7% with the older technologies of insulin, sulfonylureas, TZDs, drugs like that, and they actually didn't show this micro or macrovascular benefit. And I think when you got, when you look at the newer trials with the SGLT2 and the GLP-1 agonists, like these this newer technology, the treated groups had A1Cs above 7%, even close to 8%, and they still had a cardiovascular benefit. And so... My big takeaway from that is that it's not the glucose lowering itself, like aggressive glucose lowering. It matters how you lower the glucose and just using that older technology, even if you lower the glucose, you're not going to have that cardiovascular benefit. And that's, that's why, um, you know, if you're looking at this guy, he's on metformin. Metformin is one of the ones that actually has a benefit. In the, in the UK PDS trial with metformin, the treated group had an A1C about 7.4%. And after 10 years, they did start to see like a mortality benefit. So uh, again, above 7%. And I think that's where the 7 to 8% comes for most patients.
1: So so I'm going to differ a little bit only because the way that I practice medicine is I, I want the patient to be fully engaged with whatever we're doing. So the first thing I'm going to talk about with the patient is not necessarily what his A1C goal is, but what his personal goals are. Because because if he's self-motivated, if he can cut out his soda or his whatever it is that that is predominantly increasing his A1C, those are things that I'll target first without necessarily targeting the A1C. Just look at whatever lifestyle things that he's doing and or uh, how self-motivated he is. And I also look at the medications that he's on and determine well is this the best that we should be on right now is this the most cost effective should we consider changing things how compliant um maybe not compliant but how adherent are you on the metformin because it doesn't say metformin xr for example and the immediate release metformin has uh, anywhere from a 30 to 60 percent risk of diarrhea and so at non-adherence is pretty high on the immediate release metformin so one of the first things i would do is potentially just talk to him and look at the meds he's on and not even really focus on the a1c initially
0: yeah so this is i agree with you here that the the lifestyle and metformin are the backbone of therapy and if you can get a patient less than 7% with lifestyle and metformin um absolutely do it um i'm just think i'm just saying when you're thinking about adding that 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 next medication Especially if the mm-hmm. patient's between seven and eight percent already, then you really got to think about the like, what are you? Why are you trying to get that A one C less than seven? That's my main take
1: home.
2: Right. What I about think, you, Paul? So, well, thank you for asking. I actually, I agree with you on, on some point. I some points. Actually, you've made a lot of good points in the episodes that are reviewed. Which is, I'm going to say it out loud one time. So, put that in your back pocket <laughs> and keep it with you for the rest of your life. Got it. Um, but I, I will say, I probably, I, I shoot between 7 and 8. I kind of, I I think I'm more, and I, maybe you guys would disagree with this, but I feel this is kind of in line with, Matt, what you were saying, um, is I, I'm less concerned about the specific A1C number, if it's kind of close to that goal, and more so what is the right combination of medications that mean mm-hmm. their comorbidities will get to them to the goals that we're actually shooting for and that they'll take. Because the at the point, I think that you're making, Stuart, I, is well taken, the most effective medication is one that the patient can take. So if right. they, so if, for instance, for this patient... Um, if weight loss was his personal goal, I might favor a GLP-1 if he didn't mind an injectable. But otherwise, I might favor an SGLT-2 because it looks like his blood pressure could use a little bit of help. Um, it looks like he probably has probably has underlying CAD, even if we've not actually done heart catheterization. And so you have the cardiovascular benefit. And maybe he's needle averse, so that would be another reason to sort of lean more towards the SGLT-2. But it, it really depends a lot on the patient in front. But I think my my target now is to get them on the most effective medications that reduce Um, morbidity and mortality, as opposed to trying to target a specific A1C number, though obviously that's a good surrogate for how you're doing with your diabetes control. Maybe not a good surrogate, but a surrogate for how you're doing with your diabetes control. Yeah,
1: and I think one of the most important things to keep in mind here is that we're trying to target reduction in cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. And a lot of the evidence that we have is not on hydrochlorothiazide, but on chlorothalidone, which was also foot stomped by the ACCHA in their most recent guideline on hypertension. I mean, there, there's a few things here that are overlapping, obviously, but uh, there's a lot of things to think about.
3: Absolutely. I think those are good points that, you know, we have really good evidence that treating high blood pressure and treating hyperlipidemia give these patients significant benefit and are cheap. And, you know, we have a lot of options to manage those. And I think sometimes we get really fixated on the A1C goals when really those are not the things that are going to lead to the heart outcomes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But man. still
3: important for us to be aware of what they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Except <laughs> for maybe the SGLT2 inhibitors, which are just apparently taking everyone by storm.
0: So I, I mentioned this a little bit before. So let, let's let's get back to our guy and talk a little bit about. So he has he has an A1C of nine percent. So we all agree, I think, that we want to get this guy lower. He's 49 years old. As of yet, we don't know how long he's had diabetes, and we don't know if he's had micro or macrovascular complications. I think that's important to know. The VADOD guidelines written by our friend Dr. Colburn, they they actually, you know, if the patient has already accumulated a whole bunch of microvascular outcomes and macrovascular outcomes, then it doesn't really make as much sense to be super aggressive because a lot of the damage has been done. Um, I think it's super interesting. Molly, were you surprised to learn that, like, there's not strong evidence in those all those trials that i mentioned in type 2 diabetes with the older agents like saving the kidneys saving the nerves saving the eyesight were you surprised to
3: yeah uh, no, I had I had sort of looked into the data before, but I, I think with the DOD guidelines, it's really interesting that they recommend deintensifying therapy when patients have more advanced disease, which is sort of the opposite of everything else we do. You know, if someone has yeah. had a heart attack, we want strict blood pressure control. If they've had a stroke, we want strict lipid control. And then now we're saying, well, you know, these, these therapies work, but if you really have a problem, don't take them. You know, it doesn't. It sort of shows us that they're not actually working.
2: Like, well, that ship has sailed.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. we that. give up.
0: <laughs> for for the audience that doesn't have this chart in front of them, if if the person has no uh, major comorbidities and they don't have any of the microvascular complications um, and they have a life expectancy like more than ten years, you'd be most aggressive in the, by the VA DOD guidelines. Um, so, A1C, you could if you could get it less than seven percent, that's someone that they say maybe you could do it. But for people with a life expectancy less than five years and lots of advanced, like maybe they've already lost part of their vision, they have like albuminuria, they already have neuropathy, those are patients where you might even let the A1C go up to between eight and 9% because that person is already very sick and they're more likely to be harmed by more aggressive therapy.
3: Kind of to reiterate what you said that just we don't have great data that an A1C less than seven really reduces microvascular complications. And importantly, none of those were, um, you know, patient-centered endpoints. None of them are hard endpoints. It's not starting dialysis. It's not actually going blind. It's microalbuminuria, which the patient doesn't care about, and uh, laser photocoagulation, which maybe they care about, but not as much as going blind. So, you know, that sort of adds even more kind of push that that we just don't have a lot of hard evidence of benefit in terms of these microvascular complications.
0: Right. So Um, that was the UKPDS trial and the Advanced trial. They they showed some benefit for these those two surrogate endpoints you said, like the laser and the albuminuria, but uh, not the hard endpoints. Patients are like, they probably don't know what to do with that if you tell them. As a reminder, today's episode is sponsored by ACP's I Raise the Rates initiative to raise adult immunization rates. With the added risk of COVID-19 this flu season, it's more important than ever to recommend your patients get the flu vaccine, especially patients with underlying chronic conditions who are at high risk for severe influenza and COVID infection. All physicians play a critical role in raising the rates. Research shows that patients who receive a strong recommendation from a physician are more likely to get vaccinated. So let's avoid the twindemic of COVID-19 and flu. Remember, National Influenza Vaccination Week is December 6th through 12th. Visit ACP's Adult Immunization Hub at acponline.org forward AI to learn more about how you can raise the rates for your patients.
3: Uh, yeah, but but thinking about this case a little bit more, I mean, I, since this is an established patient, like we've already tried to work with him on lifestyle measures and just haven't really had success. And so I, I think we all agree that he could use a little better um Glucose control, and so now that we have these new medications, the SGLT two inhibitors and the GLP one agonists, um, you know, we we have better data that these can be really helpful in reducing long term complications in terms of macrovascular complications, death, even, and um, major adverse cardiac events, as well as CKD endpoints. So, I I think these are really you know, exciting that we have this new data coming out. Do you guys have a preference of which one you would sort of recommend for this patient? One more thing to frame it and then
0: I'll throw it to yeah. to Stuart or Paul here. The with with these newer agents, the SGLT2 inhibitors, the GLP1 agonists, they for patients either at high cardiovascular risk, which you could argue maybe our 49 year old with all these comorbidities, he's at high cardiovascular risk, or patients with known cardiovascular disease. That's where they that's where they have shown the benefit so far, so Paul, you work in uh, an underserved population. Have you been able to I think it's one of those things that you know people always say, oh I, I work in an underserved community I, I can't use these agents is that is that a true thing?
2: They can be used it, it requires a little bit more work um, than still than throwing a on urea at which I think we would all agree is probably the wrong course of action at this point. Um, but you it's you can still, after you have someone on metformin, they are covered by most plans. You still have to fill out some paperwork to actually get them approved, um, to, but it's it can be done. So you just have to put a little bit of effort into it. So it's actually, I have a fair number of patients, uh, a lot on the GLP-1s and then a, a fair amount on the SGLT-2s as well.
0: So how would you think about uh, sizing a patient up like this, like our patient here? How might, what might push you more towards putting them on one agent than the other? And I think you might've alluded to it a little bit before.
2: A little bit. A, a lot of it is patient preference, if I'm being honest. Again, since we're talking uh, someone who has theoretical cardiovascular complications, our particular patient here, this case, where we don't have um, advanced cardiovascular disease um, or even sort of heart failure, where I might favor more like an SGLT2. It's just a patient whose glycemic control seems suboptimal. I, I might lean more towards the SGLT2 just because I feel like pills are an easier sell than either daily yeah. or weekly injections. But that's that's really the only reason I think I would push for that one. May, may, the main reason, I should say, why I push for that one more than the other. Though I think, I did want to actually ask Stuart, I hope I hope you don't mind, but I think you had some thoughts about sort of symptomatic hyperglycemia and the, sort of the choice to actually initiate those agents. So we had a little bit of conversation about that. Yeah. On how, um, how do you think about CLT2s in patients with sort of not great A1Cs?
1: Well, okay, so I kind of want to back up a little bit and... Try not to pull a politician move here. I'll answer your question by by answering a slightly different question. Right. As long as you don't because,
2: answer with another question,
1: that's fine. <laughs> right. So because a because question that, that, that you're throwing is SGLT2 versus GLP1. And I think we still have to consider insulin in this patient for a different reason. So his BMI is 29, but is he losing weight? Has he been losing weight for six months, 12 months? Is, it, is he on a downward trend that suggests that he's not like that his his Energy metabolism balance is promoting uh, cachexia. Uh, if he's not, in, if he's more in, in a catabolic state, this is a patient that, to me, in my mind, I would consider insulin in these patients, which is also somewhat answers your question about SGLT2 inhibitors because if someone is losing weight and you need to shift the insulin or shift the glucose intracellularly to promote aerobic metabolism and et cetera, et cetera, those patients are very much at risk of uh, pushing them over the edge in the euglycemic DKA because there's only so much of the uh, energy substrate that, that they're using right now to prevent them from going into straight up ketogenesis. yeah. Um, and so putting a patient who has these symptoms of glucotoxicity, so polyuria, polydipsia, polyphasia, on an SGLT2 inhibitor is something that I caution against because of the risk for euglycemic DKA. And those patients are ones that I would very much consider insulin. And you had mentioned uh, that your decision tree is, is this per- person going to do injections or is this person going to take pills? I-, I think it's also important to understand that we do have an oral uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist who that that is available in some markets, the semaglutide, that has very much the same endpoints that we've seen with the injectable GLP-1 receptor agonists. So to me, it's more of a question of what they would benefit more from. And if I had to select between SGLT2 and GLP-1, receptor agonists, everything being equal, I would likely shift towards SGLT2. There's, there's just so much data with uh, reduction of uh, progression of chronic kidney disease, improvements in heart failure outcomes, um, readmission rates for heart failure patients. It's it, just across the board, just a, a, a great medication.
3: I think, again, to stress that those are all secondary prevention trials, basically. Right, right, right. So, Stuart, I
0: like the point that you made there, and I completely agree with you. The patient that's losing weight, that's clearly in a catabolic state, they're, they've been on, like, let's say the patient that's been on metformin and they've been stable, then suddenly their A1C is 12 or 13. I mean, I agree with you. That patient, probably their beta cell function is is out, and that might right. be someone that's going to need insulin, maybe even lifelong as far as as far as we know right now. And and then with the euglycemic DKA issue, um, for the audience, we talked a little bit about this with Dr. Colburn and Dr. Leafert that the because they're peeing out the sugar, it sort of hides the fact that they don't have enough insulin around. Like usually one of the big signs of DKA is like you see the sugar is like higher than 250 and the patient's mm-hmm. got symptoms and, and they're starting to be sick. But with the with the SGLT2 inhibitor, it kind of hides the elevated glucose. So it's, it's people may be slower to recognize what's actually
1: happening. What, what do you think about the other adverse uh, events that have been touted? For uh, SGLT2 and I think we discussed those yeah. too, did we not?
0: So I I I, I love this. Uh, like Molly, are you using much of the SGLT2, and how do you counsel your patients when they're asking about this? Um, when when they're asking yeah. about like all the scary stuff that's out there?
3: Uh, I offer it to a lot of patients, but I treat mostly women, and they have all experienced yeast infections, and they hear that, and they're like, no,
0: no oh, they don't I want, want the that, shot. really?
3: They don't want it, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so. Um, I, I would say I, I end up using more of the GLP ones. Um, but I do exactly like you said, kind of offer them both options and, and go through the risks and benefits of each. So I think to to kind of recap on the SGLT2. So they help you pee out extra glucose and sodium by inhibiting the co-transporter for sodium and glucose in the proximal tubule of the kidney. Um, And so kind of all the things that we might think would happen when you pee out extra sodium and glucose can happen. You can get hypovolemia, hypotension, urinary frequency, and um, uh, genital, candidal infections. But Um, not UTI,
0: surprisingly. mm -hmm. Or... It's. It seems like I've seen conflicting studies. The most recent like s- review of this that I saw was, I think, by Seraphitis in 2020. And it was really, they weren't clear. It's not clear that it causes like worse UTIs. Is that consistent with what you've seen as well, Molly? Or did you-
3: yeah, and that's what our guests kind of highlighted, which is sort of not what I had initially been telling patients. So I'm yeah. glad to be cleared up on that one.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. so the way that I frame it is, Candidal infections, fungal genital infections are common, so you're definitely going to be want to pay attention to like hygiene, especially like for me, for men anyway. I think it's it's probably easier to avoid them. Uh, UTIs are uncommon. I think there's some stuff out there about possible increased risk of bone fractures, but it hasn't really been borne out yet. And then Fournier's gangrene, euglycemic DKA, uh, those those are less common side effects, um, and and the amputation risk with SGLT2 inhibitors, the FDA actually removed that warning because that was really only seen in the one, the CANVAS trial and uh, follow-up like registry data, post-marketing surveillance, whatever you call it, um, was enough that they were able to remove that warning about amputation. So I I do just tell people, as we should, to be minding their feet, but I don't think the amputation risk is something that should make you avoid these agents. and. Some of the side effects that you mentioned, like the risk for hypotension, I mean, you could also spin it as a. Actually, this might lower your blood pressure a little bit. So, Paul, for this guy, how would you adjust his medications because he's on some blood pressure medications at baseline? Mr. Glaflozin,
2: oh, he's on so the thiazide, and I. So we we had a couple of recommendations from a number of guests. I think. One balance, I think the recommendation was to stop them entirely. I think uh, Dr. Topp, if I'm not mistaken, said that if they're doing okay, you can consider restarting at half the dose, uh, and then do check a basic metabolic panel at some point. I think Jeff Colburn made the point that you actually, I think it's like a 10% volume loss when you initiate these agents, which ain't nothing. So like yeah. you do, you do run the risk for acute kidney injury and electrolyte disturbances, so be a little bit mindful. So I, I think... Checking a week to two weeks out is not an unreasonable thing to do, and then you can know, consider restarting the thiazides if you feel like you still need the additional blood pressure control.
0: It was interesting that the loop diuretics that they're continued, yeah, and uh, I think there this may even be complementary, and that may be even part of the the whole heart failure uh, less heart failure hospitalizations. Um, although, if people want to really get geeky on SGLT2s, they can listen to our Neff Madness episode where we talk about these kind of pleiotropic effects of the drugs, anti-inflammatory, anti-fibrotic, decreased oxygen consumption, all of these things.
1: Sure. I just wanted to kind of throw this back at, at all of you. The SGLT2 inhibitors reduce your blood pressure by about 5 to 10 millimeters of mercury. Interestingly enough, the reduction in blood pressure for hydrochlorothiazide is about 5 Little above five millimeters mercury, chlorothalidone about 10 millimeters mercury. And so, if the blood pressure is controlled on the thiazide like diuretic or thiazide diuretic, it actually makes sense to hold that while you're initiating SGLT2 inhibitors because it has the same equivalent blood pressure reduction, right?
3: So, maybe what... I just don't have a lot, maybe I just don't have a lot of patients with really tight blood pressure control, but I have just been keeping my patients on, um, on thiazide diuretics, I think. You know there is that concern about AKI with hypokalemia. I'm sorry, with hypovolemia. But all of the studies actually showed a lower rate of AKI in patients treated with SGLT2s. Yeah. So I think it might be something that as we get more comfortable with these medications, like how we used to check LFTs with statins and now we don't anymore. I think in time we may feel more comfortable with that. Um, but it's just sort of early to know.
0: So if this guy had, he's on metformin, one gram uh, twice a day. So we, he's on max dose metformin we're going to keep them on that. If we were going to put them on an SGLT2, um, we don't really have to worry too much about hypoglycemia. For patients who are already on insulin or a sulfonylurea, theoretically, those patients could have hypoglycemia when you add an SGLT2. So Dr. Colburn recommended, and this is expert opinion, uh, lowering the, the total daily dose of insulin by about 20 to 30%. So if they're on 10 units of insulin, you might lower it by two to three units uh, for the day, just to try to leave a little bit room for these for this agent.
2: I, I just, I want to ask you, and I, again, I'm i genuinely curious, when you have, when you're talking about initiating insulin in a patient, so say someone whose A1c is nine, and maybe they have some of the symptoms of hyperglycemia and you're starting it, when you're doing counseling for those patients, I, back when, you know, back when we started doing this, and all you had was metformin sulfonylurea and insulin, and then once they got to insulin, you are on it until you were dead. Like that was sort of the old practice. But now, do you ever frame the conversation when you're starting insulin as if this might be a temporary measure and our goal is to actually get you off of insulin? Is that how you're framing the discussion or do you just sort of not make that potential promise you can't keep? I'm just wondering how you have that conversation with patients.
1: That is exactly what I say to the patient, that ideally, if we can control your glucose without the insulin, that's the, the, the end goal. Um, but there is a chance that you may be on the insulin indefinitely if we cannot control it with the oral medications. But, um, but no, I I think providing that kind of hope to the patient is is also helpful to establish that rapport and that relationship long-term because they feel like they're part of that decision-making and and having the patient feel that way just improves adherence in general.
3: Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, some of it is just getting them over that aclu- acute glucose toxicity and mm-hmm. allowing right. what insulin they have to actually start working a little bit better. But I think it can also be really motivating to patients. Obviously, it doesn't work for everyone, but I have had two patients. There's a study going on at UCSF right now, the Delish study that's a keto study for diabetic patients. Um, and I've had two patients on intensive insulin, so premeal and basal, and they were on very high doses, and they both are doing amazing. You know, their A1Cs are down from – 10 on 50 units of insulin to six on none. And, yeah. You know, so I think there, that'll be some really interesting research once it gets published. Obviously the keto diet is not for everyone, but for yeah. people and that fasting. it works
0: for. I know people are, mm-hmm. it's the same kind of principle, but uh, people are also experimenting with fasting and trying to be able to do intermittent fasting. So I think there's going to be, I, I think diabetes treatment will get much more savvy if you have patients that are able to work with you and and follow some of these things. But I do want to make sure we have time to talk about the GLP-1 and then touch a little bit about on insulin as well. So let's say for whatever reason, um, our patient, Mr. Gliflozin, he's read stuff in the news. He's really like, even though you're telling him Fournier's gangrene is a very rare occurrence with these agents, he's like, I don't care. I'm not risking that. I'd rather inject myself with a GLP-1 agonist. Um, Molly, what? how do you counsel your patients? You mentioned you use these more commonly. So how do you counsel your patients about those?
3: Yeah, I think patients are pretty nervous about the idea of an injection, but once they get them, most of them are like a pen auto injector type thing. It's very easy for patients to use. You know, Once they've sort of gotten over that hump of doing it once yeah. or twice, once a week is really pretty easy to fit into their lifestyle. Um, the thing I tell them the most is that in part of the way that it works is it slows digestion and so patients will feel a little nauseous, a little early satiety um, and I try to sell that as sort of a good thing you know it helps them eat less if they eat less, they will have less of these symptoms. Um, I think Dr. Colborn framed it as an effect, not a side effect um, you know that it, there is some beneficial approach there um, the GLP ones, especially uh, semaglutide and liraglutide, have a little bit more benefit in terms of weight loss, which can be very encouraging for patients. Um, the liraglutide is daily, so that's a little bit, you know, harder of a sell sometimes. Although I find it's, it's really mostly just depends on what their insurance will pay for in terms of which mm-hmm. one I choose.
0: I was looking at the needle size because I know the uh, extended release exenatide which uh, was it used to have a larger needle device than what the normal insulin pens are and that was somewhat of a barrier they now have one that where the needle's covered and I it may be smaller but it, at the very least it's covered and a lot of these don't have a huge needle or the needle is, device is covered where they can't see it and they're just like pressing something against their skin and they don't see this unsheathed like, larger needle than what they than what they may be used to. So I think that's less of a less of a barrier. And as Stuart mentioned, there is an oral agent, I can't say that I've I've had anyone on it yet. Um, Molly, what do you how do you handle the once weekly agents and the whole ramp up period? Because we, we talked with Dr. Colburn about the um, they, they take about five weeks to get to steady state.
3: Yeah, um, the most of them have like kind of ramp up dosing. So usually there's a low dose to start with for the first month, and then if they're doing okay, like a treatment dose. And then it depends on the the different medication. But I think some even have like a third step up dose if, mm-hmm. if the A1C is still not a goal. So I just look it up every time depending on which medicine I use. And
0: and I meant more from a standpoint of like tapering other medications. Like let's say they were on yeah. med, let's say this guy was on metformin and a urea his A1C is 9% and we want to we're going to be starting him on the GLP-1. Do you ever like taper off the other agents to make room? Yeah.
3: Um I would I would probably just stop the sulfonylurea. Um I haven't added them on in, in any patients that I can think of with insulin. I, I like Dr. Colburn's suggestion of decreasing by 20 to 30%. I, mm-hmm. I think it would be challenging in a patient who's, you know, very brittle diabetic or like, sure. you know, I I would hope that they're checking regular blood sugars because it might take some more uh, careful adjustment. But, you know, in patients that have kind of some wiggle room, they still have some pancreatic function. Um, you know, I think just stop cutting the insulin or stopping the sulfonylurea right when you start.
1: Mm-hmm. They'll
3: be a little high for a while, but that's okay. Yeah. I think it's easier than trying to, you know, make multiple adjustments. And So
0: I did want to mention to the audience uh, both the SGLT2s and the GLP-1 agonists. Um have about a three kilogram weight loss or so um sometimes i i was i was led to believe in my practice that patients with on the g l p one agonist this is more anecdotal had a little bit more of a weight loss, and I think it depends by agent paul what's been your experience
2: yeah i mean i in in practical that's what it has looked like in my patient practice, but maybe I'm just paying more attention to the patients on the g l p one yeah. agonist too in terms of their weight, but so it seems to be more a little bit more with that, but I, you know, that's just based on my personal experience and not on any, I've not studied the data. Yeah.
0: And the only scary thing, if patients look these up, they might, they might see that uh, men's syndrome, uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia and thyroid C cell tumors, at least in animal studies seem to have an increased incidence. Um, it's, it's inconclusive as to whether or not that's something that happens in people. Uh, as of right now, it's, it's, doesn't seem to be the case, uh, nor do other cancers, at least by the one study I was able to find. Uh, there's no incidence, increased incidence of other cancers. And whether or not this causes pancreatic cancer or pancreatitis, um, also inconclusive. And uh, they, the recommendation is just like, if someone's had an episode of pancreatitis, you, you probably would stay away from these agents. Molly, anything else that you wanted to go over with these agents before we get to like the next case and, and start to wrap up?
3: Yeah, I think one last thing um, that's been an update since we last recorded an episode on diabetes was this trial SUSTAIN-9 came out. And it looked at actually combining GLP-1 and SGLT two medications in patients who were not at goal for their diabetes. And we saw that they had an appropriate, you know, as expected, additional A1C reduction and additional weight loss. So they seem to be... Um, Building upon each other. And in patients where it might be appropriate, you know, they have indications for both, we can feel confident that if they can get it paid for, they can take both of them. So, with our guy,
0: let's say we put him on a GLP1 agonist and his A1C comes down to 7.5%. He also improved his diet a little bit and actually started taking the metformin twice a day as prescribed. So, uh, hopefully. He's on his way to uh, better outcomes. And I, I guess the other thing we maybe haven't foot stomped enough with about the GLP-1 agonists and the SGLT-2 inhibitors is that um, the main the main benefit uh, versus insulin and sulfonylureas, is at least one of the big benefits is like very low risk hypoglycemia and weight loss, not weight gain. Um, which are, you know, if you're, if you're picking diabetes meds, hypoglycemia and weight gain are like the worst side effects. Uh, you, don't, you definitely don't want them.
3: Our next patient in clinic, um, Mr. Advanced, is a 69-year-old man who has had progressive CKD. He now has an EGFR of 30. He's had longstanding diabetes and previously had a stable A1C at 7.6 on empagliflozin, glipizide, and metformin. Uh, he's lost some weight, and his recent A1C was 6.1%. Um, He doesn't check his blood sugars at home, and maybe he hasn't really felt great, but doesn't really notice any symptoms of hypoglycemia that he can identify. Um, So I wanted to talk in this case kind of about two things. One is managing um, patients with CKD and thinking about how we can use these medications, and then also the ACP recommendation to consider deintensifying patients um, on pharmacologic therapy if their A1C is less than 6.5%. So anyone want to start off with that?
2: I'd like to see what or hear what Paul is gonna say about this. I mean, this this is tricky. So for sure de intensify. I would also be alarmed at a twenty pound weight loss in my sixty nine year old. <laughs> <laughs> I so so I, I might chase that down too while I'm at it. But yeah, no, for sure I, I would back off. I think it would be um it's tricky. I hate the sulfani so much, but I really he's sort of at this GFR where I might think actually about um probably taking the metformin off first, I think. And I I, I think that we had There was always the concern about lactic acidosis with um, patients with chronic kidney disease and sort of starting or continuing metformin. I think we've become much more liberal in terms of our metformin use, and appropriately so, because the evidence is not great for that. So I, I think we all know now at this point you can start with a GFR over 45, but I think you continue as long as it's over 30. And for someone who seems a little bit tenuous, that might be the agent I might lean for first, just because it seems safer from a renal standpoint, theoretically. But I'd really be honestly torn and heartbroken between that or discontinuing the sulfonylurea. But I would probably do it stepwise rather than stopping both. But that would just be my approach. Yeah. Because all- I mean,
0: he's got the, the A1C of 6.1% in an older person losing weight makes me think they're probably having a lot of hypoglycemic episodes that are just going un, you know, unrecorded. And, and so the, yeah. the is is the one that's most, the highest risk for hypoglycemia. So- I think I would I would probably stop that one first. The metformin you you raise a good point, Paul. He's right at that cutoff. And now, if he's if he's got a stable eGFR of thirty, technically you could continue it. Um, I guess one other option is you could just continue him on the empagliflozin and, and uh, stop the metformin and glipizide and and see see how his sugars do. Uh, but then again, you know that the the SGLT 2s also have a little bit of an issue. Um, yeah. Not great case, Molly. Yeah, great case. <laughs> You're backing us into a corner here. So insulin, I guess. Uh, no, this. Th- yeah, this is this is interesting. I mean, the answer might be to take this person off everything. Actually, um, they they might not need anything at this point. And uh, but the the is not necessarily yeah. dangerous at a lower eGFR. It's more just like. It's effect. Yeah, they don't have enough working nephrons for it to be effective. I think that was the point that Dr. Colburn had made. So, probably you could leave on either the metformin or the empagliflozin in here, stop the glipizide, see what this person, see what happens with this person. This might be somebody that is now not eating much, their kidneys aren't working well, and uh, they're not going to get hyperglycemic. Um, they're probably having hypoglycemia, is what I think. And Stuart's like jumping through the computer screen. Did you have any comments about uh, Paul and I going back and forth about this?
1: No, I I, I actually think you both have solid points. Um, I I would probably lean more towards uh, discontinuation of, of the sulfonuria myself. It really kind of depends on the progression of the CKD, how quickly it's progressing, the risk for lactic acidosis in this patient, because I might just reduce the dosage of metformin stop the sulfonuria. follow up with them keep him on the empagliflozin for the time being because um he's otherwise relatively stable and the biggest concern that i have for him is not necessarily the lactic acidosis but the hypoglycemia yeah A- I and think so you that's actually sold me on that that that's the way that i w- that i would approach it
2: yeah, the
0: the DAPA CKD trial, it actually which which used uh, dapagliflozin um, in patients with or without diabetic CKD. Some of the patients, I was looking at the uh, you know table one in there. Uh, I think it was like something like ten percent, a little over ten percent of the patients actually had an eGFR less than thirty. So I I don't think it's as we said, not an absolute contraindication to continue right. that one, but the, the the main point here is. Uh, there's there's a lot of difference. You know, we we kind of said getting an A1C less than seven percent is is not necessary necessary for most patients. I would say if we changed this case and said this is a sixty nine year old guy who's got, uh, you know, he has CKD, uh, like with an eGFR in the fifties, his blood pressure is controlled, he's exercising, he's doing great, and now his A1C is like six point five. I would still probably stop the glipizide and just see what happens, but I would continue the. you know, he's somebody that if he's not having side effects, I think some people, uh, you they're going to get less than seven on metformin, maybe on an SGLT2 or a GLP-1, and I think that's okay, and I think you can continue them in those patients, but it's the older, sicker patients like this one where I'm worried something bad's brewing here and I'm worried he has hypoglycemia. That's where I would back off. So it's not like an absolute, like I'm not totally against people having A1Cs under seven because I think yeah. I can hear the audience yelling at us through the computer about that.
2: Right. And I think at your theoretical patient number two, like there's potential macrovascular benefit from the metformin and there's the macrovascular and potential nephroprotective benefits from the the, the SGLT2. So yeah, that's someone I agree with you the 100%. And they're not going to be hypoglycemic probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I would let those two agents ride kind of almost regardless of where the A1C goes.
1: Right. Um, he's also got progressive CKD and maybe he's got some iron deficiency there. With some oh, anemia of CKD as well.
0: <laughs> you can never rule out iron deficiencies.
1: No, you just can't. You just can't. It's kind of like lupus. Yeah.
0: So I think we're pretty much... Uh, <laughs> Next I th- way to bring it back around. <laughs> I think we're pretty much out of time here. So uh, any last minute comments, Molly? Uh, w- Do we miss any of the big key learning objectives here?
3: No, I I think uh, I think we we got a good recap. I mean, there were, we've done a lot of episodes on that cover diabetes, and so there's a lot more information if listeners are really interested and want to go back to the original episodes. Um, but I think you kind know, of the key point is that you know we have these great new medications, the SGLT2s and the GLP1s, and we should feel confident starting them and continuing them in our patients who could get benefit. All right, and we will fade that to the outro.
2: This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. So sweet. Oh no, oh, no. I, didn't. I didn't like that at all. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
1: That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact Matt directly at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. He's waiting for your email. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, the one and only Molly Hoibline, and to our so- social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris, the Chewy Man Jew, who's still on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham.
0: And before I sign off, I wanted to thank our CME partner, VCU Health Continuing Education. They offer free CME credit for all healthcare professionals. Uh, for most of our shows at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is sign up and create a free account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
3: And I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein.
2: And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music that has been placed here by Clara Morgan of Notterley, who edits our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.